Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. As we come to an almost unbelievable moment, and we come to our final sermon in the book of Matthew. It has been four years and one month that we have spent in this book. 137 sermons. This will be our 138th. And after this, we will say farewell to an old friend. So Matthew chapter 28, as we pick up at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit now, that he might come and help us as we study your holy, inerrant, and infallible word. We pray that he would come and that he would minister to us, opening our hearts to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church. Father, as your servant of old, we come and simply pray saying, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century London preacher, once said of Christians, You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. There's hardly a more perfect succinct encapsulation of the Christian gospel than that. That you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. All those who have faith in Christ, who are united to him by faith, all those who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they stand before God as if they were perfect and sinless and and wholly obedient. Because Christ went to the cross and stood before God as if he were you with all of your wretchedness and your disobedience and your law breaking. That is what lies at the very heart of the Christian message. It is the very core of Christianity. It's the major point that Matthew has been driving home to us in the last chapters of his gospel. As he showed us what it means for Jesus to go and stand before God as if he were us. Matthew has, you remember in the upper room, shown us Jesus declare unequivocally that he is the true and 
greater Passover lamb. In other words, in that upper room right before the Passion, Jesus says clearly, without any hesitation or or qualification, that what He has come to do is to stand substitute for His people. And to bear the wrath of God against our sins, to die our death, so that we might find life, true life, in union and communion with God. And Matthew has shown us the weight of that substitution as he's walked us slowly with Jesus out from that upper room through the night to the cross where he has borne the wrath of God against all the sins of his people. As Matthew has, with a deliberate, at times even painful slowness, shown us Jesus. Not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbling himself. To stand before God as if he were us. Bearing our guilt and bearing the just and righteous wrath of God against our guilt. But you remember Matthew has been careful to bring us to the end and to show us what it all means. First of all giving us that great glimpse in chapter 27 in that enigmatic passage in which he describes the temple curtain being torn in two and the dead being raised from their graves. But then more fully in chapter 28 Matthew showing us definitively clearly the resurrection of Jesus himself. In it all Matthew saying to us. That this is the glorious result of our Lord's deep suffering in His passion. That we are by faith reconciled to God. That death has been defeated and that we have been brought back to the true life of fellowship with God. In other words, the result, Matthew is saying, of everything that Jesus has just undergone is that we are able to stand before God as if we were Christ. That we are able to stand before God, cleansed from our sin, washed clean from our transgression, credited even with the positive righteousness of the record of Christ's obedience. That we are able to stand before our holy God without fear. That we are able to stand before our holy God with the joy and security of knowing that this almighty God is our Father, our Abba, who welcomes us into His presence. Of course, it's not just the story of these past few chapters. It's the story of this whole gospel. It's the story of the entire book that we have spent four years and one month looking at. As we have walked through this gospel, we have seen those same themes teased out and applied in a whole host of ways as Matthew has shown us our incredibly deep need for a saviour. He has shown us Jesus as that holy, perfect and sufficient saviour. What is the gospel? What is the good news that Christianity has to declare to this world? We are tempted, as as G.I. Packer has written somewhat condemningly in his introduction to his book on the Apostles' Creed, we are tempted to reduce it down to, to just a little presentation, almost a sales pitch, to put it in the most cynical of terms. 
Something fast. Here's your needs. Here's the solution. Accept, believe, and confess. Congratulations. You're a Christian. But according to Matthew, according to Mark and Luke and John, the men who wrote the books that we call the Gospels, the Gospel, the Christian Gospel, is the life of Jesus. What Matthew's been showing us over these past few years is that the Christian Gospel is a person, not a presentation. Right? That's why Matthew has spent so much time showing us Jesus, taking us with Jesus throughout Galilee. Why he's had to sit and listen to the sermons that Jesus has preached to the crowds. Why he's brought us into those intimate seminars that Jesus has held with his disciples. That's why Matthew has brought us to watch the signs and the wonders that Jesus has performed. All of which are illustrating The message that he proclaimed. And and what is the message that Jesus proclaimed? All the way through this gospel, it's been one message, one sermon that Jesus has been preaching. It is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That in his uh, coming, the kingdom of God has, has come. That now that he has arrived, the dominion of sin has been broken and there is a hope of restoration and reconciliation between sinners and God. That's the whole point of the miracles that Jesus has performed. Whether it be exorcisms or whether it be healings or whether it be his miraculous command over the natural world. All of it declaring the gospel of the person of Christ. All of it declaring that King Jesus has come to establish his perfect kingdom of perfect wholeness. That he has come to defeat sin and overturn the effects of sin and bring his people into his perfect kingdom. That that Psalm 23 kingdom. That place in which we can find rest for our weary souls. That place in which we can sit at a banquet table. Even in the presence of our enemies, even as there are those who rage against us all around, we can come and we can sit and we can feast. Because we are sitting at the table of the Almighty King. And all of it has come to a head in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It's the very linchpin of this whole endeavor. Because as we saw a couple of weeks ago, a dead Savior is no Savior. And so in rising from his grave, Jesus gave that great stamp of authenticity to everything that he has said and done. In rising from his grave, he proclaimed to all heaven and earth that what he had said on the cross was true. With those final words, with his final breath, you remember Jesus crying out, John's Gospel tells us, it is finished. And his resurrection from the grave, giving that great stamp of authenticity to that cry. Redemption has been won. The serpent's head has been crushed, just as God had said it would be in his covenant with Adam right after the fall. The kingdom of heaven has been established. Death itself has been put to death. Everything that Jesus has said, everything that Jesus has done, given its crowning proof as he rose from the grave. That's the Christian gospel. But now, before we leave this book, there's one last question that must be answered. 
And that is, what are you going to do with all of this? And Matthew lays out two choices for us. We can reject it and come up with something that explains it away, or we can embrace it and we can become disciples of Jesus. The first option is the one that's adopted by the chief priests and the elders in verses 11 through 15. Here they are gathered in the city, undoubtedly self-satisfied that the troublesome Jesus has now been dealt with. The religious authorities knew that the theme of resurrection surrounded the life and the ministry of, of Jesus. And so in chapter 27, you remember, they had installed an elaborate security system around the tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body and claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. But in chapter 27, we read that the, the, the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. They understood that Jesus had said that he would rise from the grave. There's a sense in which they understood that the resurrection was the very linchpin of the life and ministry of Jesus. That he needed that tomb in, to be empty in order for his disciples to continue on. Now they didn't necessarily believe that he would rise from the grave. But they conceived that there might be a plot to make it look like he had. So they had the tomb sealed. They had a guard stand sentry over it to make sure it wasn't tampered with. But here we find some of those guards, these men, these soldiers, who have just seen the glorious angel in verse 3. And who, beholding that angel, have, have trembled in fear before him. Who, who have been so struck with terror that, Matthew tells us, verse 4, that they became like dead men. These guards now come into Jerusalem and they find the religious authorities and they, they bear witness to what has just happened. They tell them. Jesus has risen from the grave. If ever there was credible witnesses, it's these guards. Right? They, have, they have everything to lose here and little to gain. They face the possibility of execution because the empty tomb seems to indicate a dereliction of duty. They had one job to do and that was to stop the grave being opened. And here they are coming into Jerusalem and saying the grave is open. Right? They, they, are, they are putting themselves in this, in this jam. They are coming and saying that the thing we were told to do, we, we haven't done because we couldn't stop it. It's empty. If this story proves false, the story of an angel coming down and Jesus rising from the dead, if it's false, then they were going to face the most severe of consequences. They're going to pay for it with their lives. But when they come and they report what has just happened, not that the body of Jesus has been stolen, but that Jesus has risen from his grave, the response of the chief priests and the elders, you notice, it's, it's not to deny it. They believe it. 
I think they were hoping it wouldn't happen, but they believe it. They don't call these soldiers liars. And they don't do the easiest thing that they could have done, which is simply go find the disciples, torture them until they tell them where the body is. How do you disprove a resurrection? You find the body. They could have done that, but they, they don't. They apparently believe what the soldiers tell them. They believe that Jesus has risen from the grave. They believe that these soldiers have seen an angel from heaven. And so they don't try to contradict it. They don't try to, to find a solution. They simply try to cover it up. And so they fabricate another scenario that will explain this empty tomb. And so they bribe the soldiers. And they say, don't tell anybody else. Here's Here's money. Go and tell people that you have neglected your duty and that you fell asleep and while you were asleep the body of Jesus was stolen. Now that by itself is is a ridiculous notion, right? How can anybody testify to something that happens while they're asleep? And it's dangerous for these soldiers to admit sleeping on, on, on duty. But it's the best that these religious rulers can come up with. And so with bribes that are sufficient, apparently... Maybe even to pension these soldiers off and a promise to satisfy the governor, they they try to cover this whole thing up. It's a desperate move. Their response to the to the resurrection of Jesus is, is desperation. Right? The place that they end up in is having to claim that the very thing that they had tried to prevent had occurred. They they twist themselves in knots. But you understand, these men just couldn't bring themselves to admit the enormity of the resurrection. They are so entrenched in their desire to deny that Jesus was the Christ. So so committed are they to retain control of their own lives. So determined are they to reject Jesus, to reject everything that he has said and done, to reject everything that he had claimed. So determined are they to deny the gospel. To remain the captains of their own destinies and the masters of their own fates. That they come up with something to explain away the resurrection. And while it isn't very good, it's the best they've got. And so they concoct and disseminate this conspiracy. And as we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel, that is an option for you. You can take everything that you have heard out of the mouth of Jesus... You can take everything that you have seen Jesus do. You can take his suffering, his death and his resurrection. And you can just reject it and cover it up and pretend that it never happened. And you can retain control of your own life. But it will mean, like these chief priests and these elders, a fundamental dishonesty. Everything that Matthew has shown us about Jesus in this gospel is profoundly compelling. There is no hole in this story. There is no leap in this narrative. There's absolutely no inconsistency. Right from the beginning, the picture that Matthew has given us has been a tight and compelling vision of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. He's built the bridges for us. Matthew has done the work for us. To show us how Jesus directly fulfills the Old Testament expectation of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah would do. He has shown us Jesus doing distinctly messianic things. He has had us listen to Jesus say distinctly messianic things. And with the resurrection, 
Matthew has underscored everything that he has written. It is plain, it's clear, it's compelling. But you can ignore it. And in the face of all the evidence, you can try to explain it away and cover it up so that you don't have to yield your life to King Jesus. That's one way to end this gospel. But there's another option. And that's the option that we find in verse 17. We can see Jesus and we can worship Him. We can behold this glorious Redeemer whose glories are unfolded and expounded throughout this book. We can walk those golden bridges that Matthew builds for us as he takes us from the life of Jesus back to the prophecies about Him written hundreds, thousands of years before His birth. We can follow the logical argument of this book. We can stand amazed at the consistency that runs Not just throughout the book that Matthew has written, but that runs throughout all of Scripture as theme upon theme is gathered up here like strings being woven into a a beautiful rope, a rope that is strong enough to lift you up out of hell. We can come to the end of this book and we can see Jesus and we can fall at His feet and we can worship Him. As the great Redeemer King that we have seen Him to be, we can rejoice that into our great need, into our desperation, into our sorrow, a Savior has come. Jesus has come. And He has established a perfect kingdom and He freely offers us entry into that kingdom. We can read what Matthew has written and we can stand and wonder at all that Jesus has said and done. And we can give praise to God that in His goodness, in His grace towards holy, undeserving sinners like us, He has provided a holy, perfect Savior who has perfectly borne our transgressions and sins, who has perfectly paid for them and satisfied all of the law's demands so that we can come now and find union with God. But understand, Here in the last word that Jesus gives to his disciples. Jesus makes it clear that to do that. To fall at his feet and worship him. Is to have your life completely transformed. And utterly reorientated. It is he says to live a life from now on. That is wholly focused on the glory of another. It is to live a life that is focused on making disciples of Jesus. That is to say, to fall at the feet of Jesus at the end of this gospel, to give Him the worship and the honor and the adulation and the glory that He is due, is to dedicate yourself to a life in which your greatest desire is no longer that people see how great you are, but only that people see how great Jesus is. And that having seen that, that they might be baptized, that is, that they might be given the sign and the seal of this great king upon them. That they might be brought into his kingdom by faith and then themselves learning to become loyal citizens of his kingdom, obeying his law and following his command. To see Jesus as He is presented in this gospel. To respond to all that we have seen and heard. To trust in Jesus. Is to dedicate yourself wholly to the task of bringing Him glory. 
of bringing others to see his glory, of teaching others his magnificence as king, of proclaiming this gospel. And you understand this isn't new. This isn't an innovation that Matthew's come up with or that Jesus has come up with. This is nothing new. It is the ethic of the kingdom of God that has been driven home to the people of God really since the Exodus. You remember Exodus chapter 19, you ought to, because I refer to it enough. Because it is definitive for how you are to understand yourselves as people in the kingdom of Christ. Exodus 19, that passage that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2. God says to his redeemed people, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He said, you have, you have seen my goodness in your salvation. You have seen how I have lifted you, how I have carried you. How you have been passive recipients of my active work in your salvation. How I have drawn you to myself out of your slavery. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says to them, this is the great consequence of your redemption, Israel. That your defining mark now is that you are mine. That you are my treasured possession. That you are a holy nation, unlike any others on the face of this earth. Peter quotes it because it's the ethic for Christians. It's what Jesus is saying in this great commission. To be united to God in redemption means to have our lives completely reoriented around Him. It is to live all of life now in reference to Him. To have Him as the sun around which our lives orbit. The point in reference to which everything else is to be understood. That's what Matthew leaves us with here as we leave this gospel. He bids us to see Jesus. He urges us with the disciples to worship Jesus, to, to unite ourselves to Him by faith. But He wants us to understand that this is no easy believism. He wants us to understand, as someone once put it, that while the gospel is free, it will cost you everything. The offer of redemption is held out for you. The offer of the gospel is laid out before you. And all that you must do to receive it is profess Jesus as Lord. But that profession is one that will necessarily, radically change your life. It's a profession that at its core means your abdication. It means you descending from the throne of your life and humbling yourself before Christ. Giving up control, giving up power, surrendering all to Jesus and understanding yourself now belonging wholly, body and soul to Him. And for many that is a cost that is too high. It's a cost that was too high for the chief priests and the elders. Which is why the last thing we see of them is this desperate, golem-like attempt to retain control of their precious little lives. 
denying Jesus, at all costs grasping after the right of control. But here Matthew shows us that while the cost is high, that while what Jesus demands of us is nothing less than as Jesus put it back in chapter 10 and then repeated it in chapter 16, it is to take up our cross and follow Him, that is, to die to ourselves in order to live to Christ. Matthew says that while this cost is high, He's wholly worth it. But that's the picture that Matthew's given us of Jesus throughout this Gospel. A picture of Jesus that is at once Daniel's glorious Son of Man. That Almighty King who has an everlasting dominion over all the earth. That Son of Man who sits as King enthroned over all the earth, whose kingdom cannot be destroyed. The one before whom all men will one day have to come and give an account. The one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. But Jesus who is also full of tenderness and compassion. The one who deals gently with those who come and cast themselves upon his mercy. Matthew has shown us throughout this gospel, here is Jesus, a king whose power is such that it terrifies those who are around him. But a king whose gentleness is such that he would address that bleeding woman who pressed through the crowd to grasp the fringe of his garment and call her tenderly, daughter. And it's what Matthew shows us here in this great commission, isn't it? Here is Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Just like Daniel said. Here is Jesus who has the right of worship from all people on the face of the, the earth. But here is Jesus whose last words to his disciples in this gospel are, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen to how J.C. Ryle meditated upon those words. You know I had to get one more J.C. Ryle quote in. It's a long one too, but it's a good one. He says, It's impossible to conceive words more comforting, strengthening, cheering, and satisfying than these. Let all true Christians lay hold on these words and keep them in mind. Christ is with us always. Christ is with us wherever we go. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us when He first came into the world. He declares that He is ever Emmanuel with us when He comes to the end of His earthly ministry and is about to leave this world. He's with us daily to pardon and forgive. He is with us daily to sanctify and strengthen. He is with us daily to defend and keep. He is with us daily to lead and to guide. He is with us in sorrow and with us in joy. With us in sickness and with us in health. With us in life and with us in death. With us in time and with us in eternity. None have such a king, none have such a priest, none have such a constant companion and such an unfailing friend as the true servants of Christ. For the last four years, we have sat and we have listened to Matthew's gospel presentation. We have listened to his testimony about Jesus. And now as we end this gospel, there's a question for you. Having seen what you have seen, 
having heard what you have heard, will you now turn your back on Jesus and deny it all? Or will you surrender to him and go on as a free and happy subject of Christ, the perfect King? Let us pray. Almighty God, we love Jesus. We love him for all that he has done for us. Jesus, who bore in his name his mission that he had come to save sinners. Jesus, who perfectly obeyed that law. In every way that we have failed, he was found obedient. Jesus, who went to the cross to bear the penalty of God against all of our disobedience. Oh, we love our elder brother who did not just leave us in our transgressions and sins, but who out of his love and compassion for us came to bear our guilt, to pay the price of our redemption, that we would be brought home that we would be reunited with God, that we might come into this beautiful kingdom and live there forevermore. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to believe this. Lord, I pray for any here who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would show them his absolute beauty and worthiness. And I pray for those of us who have professed in Jesus, we long to see more of it. For we say, like that ancient man, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Teach us more of this gospel. Teach us more of your love. And drive us on that we might live lives of worship and glad service. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.